Hey guys, this is the Kind of an Expert podcast. My name is Corey Tyndall and I am your host. And for this episode, episode 25, I talk with one of my new friends, Alexandria Maloney. She is the president and co-founder of an organization called The World is Watching. And what they do is help out organizers around the world that are trying to organize Black Lives Matter uh, protests and the movement to give them kind of resources and answer any questions that they have regarding uh, pushback that they're getting or, you know, the best way uh, to possibly organize stuff in their little town. So uh, I thought this conversation was super interesting. It was uh, incredibly um, different to kind of hear how the rest of the world contrasts to the United States in terms of the Black Lives Matter movement um, and what we care about over here compared to what they care about in uh, Italy and France and the UK. Um, And then we also talk about a little bit of uh, what we all can do as normal, you know, average Americans to kind of help the movement and to help out people uh, that are disadvantaged um, in this entire pandemic and uh, ecosystem as a whole. So again, I thought it was super interesting. Um, There are links in uh, the show description for some of the stuff that we talked about. Um, but what, without anything else from me, let's get into it. It was like a joke, a running joke on my podcast Mm -hmm. because I used to record uh, my offices in WeWork and we used to record in spaces in the WeWork. So I'd have like comedians come up to my office Uh, and like none of them work day jobs. They've never been in a WeWork before. (laughs) So it was literally like the first 15 episodes of my podcast. (laughs) The WeWork was the first thing that we talked about and I just left it in every, every single time. So, and I'm sure the, WeWork uh, is happy about it because that's you know little little publicity for well, them. You know, I hope it's positive <laughs> things. I'm assuming they're like, wow, this is a cool space or something. I don't know what. Uh, yeah, it's it's been real. Uh, it's been real mixed. We were not uh, nice to them when uh, when their CEO like went crazy and started oh, walking around okay. the streets of Brooklyn barefoot Holy and shit. lost all that money and stuff. Oh. So you know, it's a real mm, uh, mm, whatever WeWork's doing. We're we're honest about it. Yeah. So yes. the but it is funny if I leave this in the 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 consistent listeners of this podcast would be like, God damn, you can't not talk about it. It's tradition. Yeah, it is tradition. So, um, well, cool. So let's let's just get into it. So, um, okay. So let's let's start off this time. How about how about a quick summary of like who you are, what you do with Black Lives Matter and kind of what your approach is to the whole movement because you're not you're not part of the like official United States Black Lives Movement matter or uh, organization you're part of something else, correct? Correct. Correct. We're okay. we're assisting the official Black Lives Matter organization. Got it. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what is the what's kind of the scope of what you guys are doing? Are you like, you know, helping to find organizers that can, uh, you know, put stuff out on social media or like what is what is kind of your your day to day role? Like, how do you approach your like it's Monday morning? What what are we doing today? Sure. And I'm also I'm happy to share a little bit just generally about who I am and what I do, because I get yeah. that question a lot where people are like, so Please. what do you do? You know, I've known people for 10 years who were like, so what do you do? <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah. generally, I like to think of myself kind of as a problem solver. So, like, I like to help people solve problems and I like to talk to people. Um, my background is in international affairs. I spent a few years overseas and when I returned to the US for my MPA at Cornell. My research was based on uh, developing diversity and inclusion frameworks for institutions using uh, systems thinking theory. So in short, systems thinking is um, understanding social ecosystems, all of the stakeholders in that system um, to use tools and to identify gaps and recommend solutions in short. So 
I found that U.S. foreign affairs agencies, you know, the Department of State, Department of Defense have, you know, a major opportunity for um, for this work in particular. So my passion area is getting more diverse talent involved in these areas. So I'll be doing this with the Department of Defense, but I'm also a board member for an organization in D.C. called the Black Professionals in International Affairs. Um, and I'm the president and co-founder of a recently formed global coalition called The World is Watching, uh, which is an effort to okay. build support in a number of ways with the international community around the Black Lives Matter global movement. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's, that's super interesting. Can you go into more, uh, like what you'll be doing exactly for the department of defense or is that like, are you doing top secret it's stuff? Classified. You can't. No. So in oh, short. Shit. <laughs> you're, you're working at area 51. I mean, that is cool, but <laughs> no. So in short, um, I'll be with the diversity and inclusion space there helping, you know, to create frameworks to have a to support a workforce that is more inclusive um, and more representative in terms of you know the U.S. Okay. demographics. Mm -hmm. So how do you do that? Like how do you Ooh. roll into the Department of Defense and be like, all right, day one, <laughs> this is the plan. This is how we're gonna approach this because it, it starts from the from the bottom, yes. right? Like you can't just you can't just flip a switch and it's like, all right, all of our hires for the next two years are gonna be minority right. candidates. Like it's just it just doesn't work that way logistically. So like, how right. do you approach this problem? Yeah. So generally, you start by asking questions, right? So understanding the clients, if you will, where they are, where do they think they are in the process? Are you all doing a good job? Do you think there's opportunities to do more work? Um, you know, what are some of the goals that you all would like to reach specifically the leadership, you know, the, the HR folks? Um, so that's the starting point because you can't help someone who doesn't want to be helped or who doesn't think that there's any problem or opportunity for um, improvement, right? So that's the first sure. step. Um, and then really sitting down and asking very probing questions, if you will, to get to the points to understand what are the things holding that system, perpetuating that same system. So, you know, with yeah. the military, for example, it's arguably one of the most diverse um, hiring, if you will, organizations, because coming in mm -hmm. about 40% of the um, you know, 40% of African, of the, of the workforce that starts, you know, who joins the military are actually African-American, which is higher than the percentage of the U.S. The population. But as we're finding, yeah. you know, the higher and similar to, you know, organizations in the public and the private sector, the higher you end up going, the less diverse it gets, the more, you know, um, white and male, if you will, it gets going yeah. to those levels. So what sort of mechanisms, what sort of um, uh, frameworks can exist to that organizations can use to ensure that there is that folks are having a fighting chance to even get to that level? Got it. So mm -hmm. what have you seen so far as far as the reasons that someone can't mm -hmm. make it up past those those higher levels? Um, and I guess just from from my experience, so I, mm -hmm. I work for a legal tech company and what we see is almost the exact same situation yeah. where yeah. there are a lot of black and minority associates, um, but almost none of them make it up to partner. Mm -hmm. And really what it takes to make it up to partner is you need like a sponsor from right. a current partner and right. they just don't get picked nearly as much like people want to pick the person that they're most similar to. And yes. it's like it's a huge issue that like uh companies are starting to put law firm pressure on the law firms for which is kind of you know in like a business sense that's one thing you could do right. but you can't really do that for the department of defense so like how do you how do you approach this problem of being like okay i've diagnosed it now what are the next steps like how do we get people in the door in these higher level doors sure well i'm happy to speak on it on a general you know perspective also in my opinion it applies sure. to both public and private you know if i'd you know, you may have to hire me for the full trade secrets, honey, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but generally it's exactly what you just pointed to. So sponsorship, right? The fact that some people, it, and it's not 
necessarily a race thing all the time. It's a matter of who knows how to play the game to win, yeah. right? And depending on your network or your upbringing, or you know, maybe you had parents who worked in corporate, so they know how to tell you, you know, how to how to maneuver and navigate those spaces um, that that not all people may know, right? So it's not necessarily a race thing; it's more of like a knowing the game thing. And then that yeah. sponsorship is key. You know, my grandfather always said. It, yes, it's important to be competent, but it's just as important to be well-liked in some of these environments, you know, because at the end of the day, it's like you do have to work with these people. So people don't want to work with somebody that they don't, they don't like or that they That's, may not, or, or yeah. you know, it's like a human nature thing. We're more likely to work with or feel more comfortable around people who are like us, right? Yeah. So I think for folks who are trying to, who may not already have the knowledge of how to kind of navigate that space, of being open, one, being confident in yourself, right? So not feeling like you have to pretend to be someone you're not. I don't think that that's the, the way, but you know, being open to having more conversations or learning new things or things that may be you know, of interest to the company culture that you're a part of, or you know, if in the legal field, for example, you know, you may need to, uh, folks may like to go have a drink after work, you know, and that's where the, you know, conversations on the next bidding process may come. Um, something like that, I think, are some, some tips that I could give to folks who, um, who want to kind of continue to grow that leadership level just based on the advice and the guidance that I've been given by different yeah. leaders and folks who are in the field. Because as I mentioned, my, my research at Cornell is basically based on this, is on. So just yeah, go ahead. Be, be more inclusionary is essentially what you're saying. It, it falls to the leaders to consciously make an effort to say like, okay, I'm gonna bring, when we go out for drinks to uh, discuss how we're gonna run this RFP, mm. I gotta make sure that I'm consciously aware that I'm not just bringing, mm. you know, the, the kid who just got hired who reminds me of a family member <laughs> mm -hmm. i'm bringing a, div a diverse mm -hmm. set of people essentially is what you're saying i'd agree with that absolutely absolutely okay and there's plenty so, of business models that explain why and how diversity actually brings like a higher return on investment because you're bringing different yeah. views to the table who may see something you know we all come with our own set of experiences so looking at a case or a potential client someone may see something in a different way or may you may you know good leaders know they need a devil's advocate in their in their circle to bring things that they need to know before you know the client brings it so i think God, that that's the a worst though i think that that's good leadership <laughs> practice in my opinion <laughs> but yes they can be they can be the worst yes okay <laughs> um no that that makes sense so i mm -hmm. guess like if we reset a little bit, yeah. so that was all assuming that you can go in there and the team that you're working with acknowledges that there is a problem. Those right. are things you could do. Right. What happens when you go in there and they go, I don't know, I don't really see a problem with what's going on. They're not necessarily against it. They're just completely indifferent to what you're trying to say. Like, what are some approaches? Because I feel like that yeah. could be, there's, there's a large part of America that's also going through that yes. feeling where they just don't really care on either side like how do you how do you talk to these people to uh i guess in the small and large setting mm -hmm. to really get them engaged on this and like to see why it's an issue yeah it's a two-pronged thing i'd say the first thing is that if i'm here there's a reason that I'm here. So like, and they know that there's a reason that I'm in the room, right? So even when I think about past, oh, you know, consulting that's so clients, good. so that's like the first part, right? And then the yeah. second part I'll say is the data speaks for itself. You know, like let's pull out the numbers. What is it saying? Do you see an opportunity for some, you know, um, possible new ways to grow. The point is you want your organization to be, it's a strong, strong and thriving, right? And growing. So I think that for forward thinking leaders, they understand that and are open to that. Um, you know, if you're so resistant to even having the conversation, I may not be the con I may not be the person for for this job. <laughs> I may not be the consultant for this job. But generally speaking, folks want to be 
want their organization to be in the best shape. They want to be ahead of the game and ahead of competitors. So I think when you look at it like that, leaders at least want to have the conversation. And then when you go in genuinely coming from a position of I'm here to help and not here to tell you what to do. Um, yeah. I think I found some, I've been able to help a lot of my different like consulting clients with that. So no, that, that completely makes, makes sense. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> all about how you approach it. Right. right? Like, uh, and I guess you could kind of see that with like the, the black lives matter protests that are mm. going on right now. Mm-hmm. Like, I guess, how do you feel about how they're approaching this whole movement? And I don't necessarily mean like the rioters or the looters. I think that's right. a super small segment yes. of uh, people that aren't even necessarily with the protests. So mm-hmm. not not even talking about that, but like the actual protesters, their messaging, like how would you say they're doing in terms of getting their message across to the widest group of, of people? Right. I think that the protesters are the protesters of the Black Lives Matter movement are a part, a, a piece of a puzzle of a much bigger puzzle, right? So, okay. I think that protesting and protesters help to amplify the needs and the concerns of certain communities, right? So, while that is also an important aspect of this kind of social change ecosystem, if you will. Um, what's even more important is what are the tangible policy demands coming out of the social justice organizations coming from the, you know, the responses and the, uh, policy suggestions coming from our, our legislature, from our state, local, national level, um, to really see these things. Like you need stuff in writing on record. It's nice in theory to say, oh, we're going to make things a better place you know, going out, standing in front of the, in front of the camera, the news media to say, we, we, there is a problem and we want to fix it, but we're at the point now it's time to see things on paper. What are, what are the root problems that we're looking to call that we are looking to solve that are here, you know, in a, in, in a very institutionalized way, we aren't the reason that they are here, you know, but we will be the reason that they get solved because this is, this is our generation, right? Um, yeah. So I think overall, and I've seen so much great work being done, legislation being passed. I'm seeing a lot of wins in different cities throughout the U.S. Um, so I, I see it as us moving quickly and in a in a progressive, you know, progressing in a, in a positive direction. As far as the Black okay. Lives Matter movement mm-hmm. in the U.S., yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I definitely want to get into your more international work mm-hmm. uh, as as we go. But I guess so what you're saying is you're not necessarily worried about the marketing of the the current protest because it's actually getting stuff done on paper. Uh, what do you mean by marketing? Of the so protest? I guess like the thing that uh, I'm I'm trying to get at mm-hmm. is like some stuff uh, like the phrase defund the police. Mm-hmm. Like there are. To me, it could kind of seem like that's such an aggressive mm-hmm. yet also vague yes. kind of phrase to make your your slogan gotcha. where people on the other side don't look at it as like, oh, OK, I see what they're doing. Like they literally think they're trying to get rid of the <laughs> cops in America, right. which is just like it's insane. You can't right. <laughs> like you you can't do that. And I'll be um, honest, when I first heard the term defund the police, I thought it literally meant, you know, remove all funding and remove the police. Like, I don't know about you. Yeah. I don't like the idea of living in anarchy and chaos. So, right. you know, I acknowledge no, I acknowledge yeah. the need for law enforcement, <laughs> like especially those who are actively working under the mission of defend and protect in our communities. Right. Like all communities. Um, I'm also, I'm a believer, you know, not all cops are bad. So after doing more research for myself, um, you know, I learned that this kind of phrase that is considered catchy, like defund the police is more so there are some people who are like, yes, we don't need police. Um, but I think (laughs) generally this, um, this particular cause is more about properly reallocating funds and resources so that police officers and law enforcement are actually able to spend more time like doing their jobs, right? So that police aren't spending yeah. time being the social worker and mental health worker and educator and handling issues related to housing and home, you know, homelessness. 
Um, and it's hard. Like when I look at Muriel Bowser, who's the DC mayor, for example, she's getting major backlash because she recently increased some of the funding for police in the city. And granted, it's a relatively small percentage increase. Uh, and they said that it was for new cadets. But like these political leaders are in some really challenging situations because yeah. while we recognize that there's a need for this you know, funding reallocation to support these long-term big picture changes as they're needed, like there's an equally as important obligation to ensure that you know, local governments and, and folks don't cause more harm to communities that are actually most vulnerable to crime, who depends on the need of law enforcement and protection. So like talk about a catch 22. Um, yeah. But like in terms of defunding the police and things like that, I do, I am an advocate of, I think some very, um, effective ways to further strengthen the the police um what's the word strengthen our foundations of you know law enforcement in the u.s definitely by releasing more stop and frisk data publicly you know records Mm. of police brutality things like that doj holding department of justice holding these um, police stations accountable in ways that they think would actually be effective um, as a start. Because again, we have to recognize where the problems are and what those problems look like in order to even create mechanisms to change the behavior or the culture of that, if you will. Yeah, I okay. Mm. That kind of actually does answer what I was going to ask uh next is like so we're seeing all these changes on paper we're seeing it in new york we're seeing it Mm -hmm. in minneapolis seattle i mean i guess the the issue that i'm seeing is we're seeing it in historically super liberal places where like tulsa oklahoma (laughs) is not changing any of their uh not changing any of their laws like do you think that has to do with Mm. the phrase defund the police where people kind of get freaked out like if it was demilitarize the police instead of defund Mm. do you think more people would would catch on like i i guess i'm i'm you know we're we're nitpicking here like right. obviously overall the 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 protest is doing what it can right. um but it's just right. like as someone who's in the position that you are where you're and you're doing this more overseas mm-hmm. and we'll get into that yeah. but you're helping black lives matter organizers like right. what do you tell them in terms of a strategy I think, well, I'm not in a position to like inform folks of full Black Lives Matter strategy per se. Um, okay. But in terms of, but we do provide guidance based on the recommendations of organizers who are in the Black Lives Matter movement. So I'll frame it in that way. But um, in terms of, I do think that demilitarizing the police is a more accurate term, if you will, for what needs to happen. It's not as catchy. Um, it's not as catchy, right? It's not <laughs> as catchy. But I also think, I think like like this, this could arguably, like, I think it's bigger than the phrase. I think that some of these, you know, police departments or law enforcement agencies, like it, it's considered to be an attack on their organization, on their group. Yeah. And like I said, not all cops are bad, right? But there's now so much... Um, attention and national attention on these organizations that there's likely to be a much more defensive stance um, both I'll just leave it at that a more defensive stance in my opinion from police departments and I would love to see more of um, and sometimes you have to things may need to die down a little bit because folks are still kind of a little, a little hot right now, They're hot. Um, They're hot. and that's me being nice about it. <laughs> but actually, having a constructive, holding the space for a constructive conversation around what are the actual changes that need to be made, both and what uh, um, you know solutions and recommendations seem realistic, both from the community side and from these law enforcement and police officer side, because I feel like. You know they're having plenty of conversation and have perspectives and recommendations too on how to better build trust with these communities and how to and and you know community members on how we can hold our not only our law enforcement but our public servants and our public officials accountable for the yeah. work that they do which is really yeah. important 
No, I, I agree, and that's that's actually part of the reason I want Biden to pick uh, Kamala as his mm. VP, because everyone's like, oh, no, you don't want to pick her. She's, you know, <laughs> she's a prosecutor. I was like, no, 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 she's seen the system from the inside. Like, right. she knows yeah. where it's fucked up. Like, put her in charge. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> What are you doing? Like, but yeah, definitely hearing that that other side mm -hmm. is, is definitely good. Yeah. Um, okay, so I guess more into what you're doing internationally because we touched on what you're doing with the department of defense but like um if you're not going out and giving strategy to these organizers like what are you doing specifically at your organization to help you know international movements sure. uh around you know race inequality and, sure. and, and maybe i need to clarify so we serve as we ex the world is watching exists because we recognize the surge in international Black Lives Matter protests and these global movements yeah. and the desire to connect those organizers and movements to Black Lives Matters, like the Black Lives Matter headquarters. And in the meantime, as we are identifying the appropriate person who handles these international representatives, while we've been while we've been on that process, we've also been asking, you know, how else can we help as the world is watching? Like we are a team of international and, you know, foreign policy professionals who have really immense international networks who are being contacted saying, you know, we're interested in helping, we're interested in supporting, how can we support? Um, gotcha. So in short, some of the things that we do, the, our first big project was tracking and identifying all the major international organizers. Um, through okay. through like following the breadcrumbs of, of all of yeah. the news outlets and social media posts. Um, Just checking Facebook. Yeah. yeah, and you know, checking <laughs> Facebook and find, you know, having to ask one person to ask another person to connect um, us appropriately, et cetera. So that was the first step. The second step was how can we, one, we acknowledge that you all are not official Black Lives Matter chapters in your cities. So our goal is to connect you to the appropriate person within Black Lives Matter to give you the information that you need, right? So once we get oh, past okay. that point, um, we also recognize that many of these organizers are at different phases of their, of, of the social justice movement in their country, if you will. So sure. we recognize a strong need to provide guidance and identifying like I'm not a, a um, you know, an international activist. Not in my opinion, I'm not. Um, okay. But yeah. I know people who are right. So like I can get the information from them and say, you know, we have somebody who's starting day one, ground one in their city or in their country, what advice would you give to them? Can you help us? So we develop that guidance, that framework that explains gotcha. to these organizers from day one to day, to one month, to one month, to six months, to one year, to five years, what things you need to be conscious of, what are you trying to, what problem are you trying to solve? Who are the stakeholders? What are your policy demands? You know, pro providing some assistance in that way, because a lot of these folks are, you know, activists or some of them are professional, you know, activists or have been doing this for a long time. But many of these folks are, you know, well-intended individuals who said, I'm going to just create a Facebook page and, and for this protest and for those who come, they come. We have one um, organizer out of Italy. She's literally like 17 years old. She said she created a Facebook page and thought 50 of her friends were going to come and like 6,000 people show, showed up. Holy shit. So she was like, Alex, I don't... Wait, she has 50 friends? That's so many friends. I know, I know. <laughs> I, like, you know, and that, I couldn't get and, I couldn't get six people to go to the park with right me. Now. Are you kidding? So, you know, we have folks like that coming to us or reaching out to us saying, hi, we heard about your organization from an organizer in our region. Can you help us with this question? Or we have this issue oh. happening with neo-Nazi groups. Do you have any advice on that? So while I may not yeah. be the expert on that particular thing, I'm in a position to do everything in my power to try to get that information to these individuals. Um, and then like as okay. a side piece, we're also, we have a petition. Um, I think we have about 2,500 signatures so far um, that's going to the United Nations that'll be you know declaring that members of the international community stand in solidarity um, against 
police brutality and social uh, systematic racism, social injustice, et cetera. And then we also use our social media platforms to amplify um, the voices of international, the international Black Lives Matter movement at large. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. Okay. So could you get into like, what are the different types of questions that you get around the world? Like, how are the questions different in Italy than they are in yeah. France, than they are in England, than they are here? Like, what's kind of going, or is everybody mostly on the same page, kind of? That's a great question. Um, so in terms of like differences in the U.S. Black Lives Matter movement versus the movement abroad, it's been very interesting. So while there are some similarities, like similar narratives or even like, you know, similar histories, right, of colonialism, slavery and racism, um, you know, for the sake of this conversation, you know, racism versus inst institutional racism, racism is like, I don't like you, I feel superior to you because you're black, I'm white, whereas institutional racism manifests more as like structures or policies that may affect right. black or brown communities perpetuating discrimination in criminal justice employment housing healthcare, etc Edu education yeah. yep exactly education, education especially <laughs> yeah. um so when we're looking at these issues around the world whereas you know we've had major support from throughout the black lives matter global network we acknowledge that different countries in different are in different phases of protection of black individuals in their respective countries, if you will. So black populations in various countries, you know, they're addressing variations of similar issues, um, but those variations are being applied to their local context. So for example, like what? Yeah. So for example, yeah, okay. whereas the main conversation in the U.S. right now is focused on defunding the police, ending police brutality, et cetera, that's the focus. What we found when connecting to these international organizers is that these key areas are varying on context. So like the UK, for example, is very similar to the US. Whereas hmm. in Italy or Spain, the key areas are protecting black populations, some of whom may be undocumented individuals who travel from various parts of Africa to these countries. So ensuring that these black and brown individuals have proper human rights protections in place um, in Australia, for example, there's a lot of focus on the local indigenous populations who experience major discrimination. Um, and then some of those um, same things we've seen have applied to black populations and black and brown communities that are located throughout Asia. But in terms of the Asian communities mm -hmm. in particular, I've seen so much organized work supporting Black Lives Matter, like virtual hip hop benefit concerts, community town halls, wow. like Asian social justice groups are mobilizing with the Black Lives Matter, like, you know, uh, translating the resources into their Asian languages to have these conversations. And what has been fascinating to me has been the under the radar organizing work that I've seen from members in the Asian community, for example. So I'm not sure if you heard about um, the K-pop Korean uh, pop music fan base. Like I've I've heard about I've heard they're insane. Like if you just like take Justin Bieber's <laughs> fans, ramp it up to like a, like four times that, and that's like the K-pop group. Corey, that's what I've heard. If you go on Instagram <laughs> right now and look up hashtag White Lives Matter your feed will be flooded with K-pop videos and music. I lied to you not. I don't not. think I need that on my internet record. I'm <laughs> sorry. I mean, it's just like, you could look it up and everybody knows you're doing it for uh, like information. I can't look it up. That's, uh, that's going to show up 10 years down the road. It's like, he Googled this one time. I was looking for K-pop evidence. So like, I say yeah, this. I was like, and no one would believe me. I would be like, yeah, I typed in hashtag white lives matter for the K-pop movement. And they're like, this guy's out of his fucking so, mind. Lock him up. So I can he has say, no look, idea what he's talking the, about. I'll send you the screenshot of it because I didn't believe yeah, it myself. Okay, but, like, but like, shout out to the trolls out here who are supporting the cause, like who may not be named, but we see you. And I acknowledge this because what I recognize is that some of our international allies may want to support, but like are living under particular governments or regimes who don't necessarily allow or encourage this type of civil participation and protesting, if you will, because 
then you may have citizens reflect on how they are being treated or experience um, police brutality in their countries. Yeah. Um, but it's been so inspiring to me to see so many international allies and like all the allies here and that like advocating for folks who quite honestly may not even be in a position to advocate for themselves because of citizenship status or fear of deportation you know, and using their identities and, you know, whiteness, if you will, to advocate for equality because, you know, it's a choice, right? Like, that's the reality. So I'm so thankful for folks who are using their voice and their power to choose to work towards a better world. So that's a roundabout overview of um, the, the, the information that I have on the Black Lives Matter, like global movement and what's happening around the world. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that's that's super interesting. That's super helpful. Yeah. Um, so I guess your your comment about the the allies it, it triggered a, a thought that I had about sports. Did mm-hmm. you see what happened with NASCAR today? Yes, yes, I did. Oh my gosh. So was, I mean, those. I mean, it was horrible what happened to that that guy. For, so for the the listeners, is this yeah. uh, NASCAR driver? I think his name is Bubba Watson. Yeah, Bubba, Bubba Wallace. Bubba Wallace. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he's the only black NASCAR driver, yes. correct? Yeah, like he's, to my knowledge, yes. Uh, and he he painted his car "Black Lives Matter," and mm-hmm. he was wearing a mask. Mm-hmm. He was wearing a T-shirt, and mm-hmm. he came out and did this whole statement, and it got the Confederate flag burned uh, or uh, banned from yeah. NASCAR. They're not allowed to do it anywhere. Mm-hmm. And then today, he found a noose in his locker, and which is, I mean, that's horrible. It's, yeah you know it's just pure intimidation Mm -hmm. and just a shitty Mm -hmm. human being but what i what i want to get at is like before the race all of the other drivers or if if not all of them a significant portion Mm -hmm. of the other drivers decided to physically push his car to the front of the pack (laughs) at the raceway to show their support for him and that's like that's what you're getting at with these white allies, right? Like mm. if it was just that one guy who put the noose in there and then all the right. all the other drivers kind of went, oh, okay, that's horrible. Right. And then uh, just gave some bullshit answer to the media or whatever, right. then it would kind of like, the feeling would kind of be like, okay, well, you know, they're not for it, but they're not against right. it. Where this, like now I've, I feel like it's actually going to make an impact now Mm. on the viewers of NASCAR. Like how many of them do you, how far do you think this went in terms of uh, maybe pulling people from against it over Mm. to indifferent or indifferent over to pro black lives matter? I think, you know, this was really interesting as I was reading more, learning about it um, because it's like, we, we live in America, so we know what we're capable of. We know our people, okay? We know who we are. Um, So for the fact that an organization like NASCAR, I mean, came out in front of this situation immediately, released a statement that was like, no, we're not doing this. We are unequivocally, like we unequivocally have no place for racism. You know, they like you said, they banned that Confederate flag at their races. So in my mind, I'm like, if NASCAR can do it, <laughs> you know, not the NFL, and I have my points. You know, I'm ready to talk all on the black that. people in it. <laughs> okay, I said if NASCAR can do it, whose demographic could arguably not only be offended by this, if you will, but like who's like NASCAR as an organization, their business could be affected by a decision like this. Like if they're making a decision like that, I think, you know, you mentioned the NFL. I think the NFL and these sport sports, like the full, all the leagues can do it too. Come on now. <laughs> yeah. So I have plenty I mean, more to talk about. I can go in on the NFL and in the sports leagues all day. Please, I mean, please, please do on the NFL. You're you're uniquely qualified to talk about the NFL because your your stepdad played, yes. which is like it's fascinating. I would yeah. I would be fascinated to learn kind of like what his whole take on yes. what's going on now, but also like, do you have like a has he told you like a snapshot mm. of what it was like when he played back in what the nineties? Yes, uh, you were saying mm-hmm. yeah. So like, 
how much different is it in terms of you know like day to day does it feel does he think it feels differently and like mm. you know how does he look at what they're doing today especially with the Colin Kaepernick thing and uh, now you know the lack of white allies he had yeah. at the time but now yeah. it's kind of shifted I don't know mm. I'll give the floor to you <laughs> sure well again you know I'm not a diehard sports fan by any means right but like this sure. hits, this does hit pretty personally for my family because as you mentioned like my stepfather he's a retired NFL um, for the Green Bay Packers and the Jacksonville Panthers. Um, and he also played in college at Ohio State. So it's challenging because okay. while he has shared some of some like experience, like racially charged experiences during his time as an athlete, like his overall sentiment is that it doesn't matter what race you are. Like if you can't play, you're not getting placed. Like you're not getting drafted. So, yeah. but he, and he also expresses, you know, that like, his teammates and, and his coaches who were, you know, black, white, everything in between, they spend so much time together. Like they may have had some spats or whatever, but like these folks are like brothers, like they're like family. So, you know, when we're talking about the NFL and like addressing inequalities more widely in these issues, um, a colleague of mine, Rashad Lambert, he actually wrote an article for Forbes recently about how black leaders can step up as allies for the black community. And I think that some of the points that Rashad makes in that guide can be very applicable, applicable, like not only for the NFL case, but in my opinion, in all major sports organizations, right? Like NFL, NBA, MLB, you know, NHL, Hockey League, how y'all doing? <laughs> so, yeah. you know, and as we're talking about organizations, you know, organizations are made up of people, like people who have values, and those values drive the company culture and response, right? So like, firstly in the workplace, like in an internal perspective, when I think about the NFL and like opportunities to address these things, it would seem like a good starting point for the NFL to create like a mandatory safe space, if you will. So that could be like a meeting or a forum for the purpose of acknowledging any and all toxic workplace culture and experiences of discrimination. Um, mm. So that would apply both to athletes and to the NFL or the sports team employees who are working corporate. Um, so naturally, as something like that, you know, the point is to have your company head or your HR present. So they're there, you know, listening and taking notes. It can be kind of like a private individual setting or group setting, you know. This isn't meant for the public, right? Like this is an internal step for organizations right. who want to solve this problem with the mission of HR and their leadership team to really understand the situation, not what they think the situation is, but really understand from those who are experiencing it. Um, and, and, and to be frank, you know, call an attack attack <laughs> and exploring <laughs> substantive ways to address those issues. Like, and then from there, I think similar to the NASCAR situation, implementing a zero tolerance policy for hate crimes and acts of racism like this yeah. this applies internally right like internally we're not going to tolerate it but also externally like nascar did um says a lot so i think that the nfl could definitely explicitly release a zero tolerance policy um and also you know sensitivity training wouldn't hurt <laughs> as well <laughs> and then like in some of the other general areas so i feel like yeah go ahead. sensitivity training for these people that have to go out on sunday and they and, beat the shit out of each out, other right? it's like okay yeah yeah you're you're warriors on sunday from 11 or from one to four but after that you gotta be you gotta be very sensitive like, yeah <laughs> and then a few and other obviously areas, i'm kidding they're, like, they're different things but it's, it's an interesting speaking, contrast you know like financially financially supporting efforts you know towards yeah. social justice donating to various funds you know scholarship uh you know who's selling the hot dogs in your Rita? like you have plenty of these organizations have plenty of opportunities for sports teams you know to put their money where their where their mouth is and lastly kind of on the external front for the nfl and these other sports teams like they have a major opportunity to use their platforms to bring awareness to injustice and demand results hard stop yeah <laughs> And from the actions of black athletes, like recently and historically from the sporting space, this platform has been used to bring light to these issues of social justice, like from Colin Kaepernick to the damn 1968 Olympics. So I think yeah. at the core of this NFL case and the sporting uh, organization case, like acknowledging what's happening in the US, facing it head on, you know, we live in a world where some voices are just 
louder than others. That's that's what it is. And and silence speaks volumes. So to my knowledge, some of these steps have been explored by the NFL and some of these organizations, and some have not. But, um, you know, organizations and leaders who are serious about stepping up as allies for the black community are addressing these areas head on. Yeah. And I mean, you're you're just kind of talking about the the public facing uh, aspect of it like right. there's also the issue that they're kind of having the same issue that you're talking about with the department of defense mm-hmm. where like you know the baseline mm-hmm. employee yeah. is the player but then you get up to the top levels and you know there's only two black head coaches right. and i think there's only two black gms mm-hmm. and there's probably even less mm-hmm. that are the team president right. and so it's like so how would you approach that in kind of the same would you go about it in the same way as the Department of Defense or could you make it a little more public? Like, for instance, they've talked about possibly giving an extra draft pick to a team that goes and gets a a minority Mm. GM or president or front office person. And a lot of people were kind of like, whoa, you're going to give advantages if they hire this? I can see that being as like like an incentive, but also like, can you guys just just do it? Can you just hire more diverse members? (laughs) Like, you shouldn't have to incentivize in that way necessarily. Uh, Um, (laughs) Yeah, you're just going to show up and say, what the fuck, guys? And they're going to go, we know. (laughs) Um. I think that we're at a point now where, because of the heightened national, um, you know, uh, that the, 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 the U.S. and the world is watching on these things, and like the followers of these organizations and fans, right, are watching, that it's more at stake now than it ever has been for some of these organizations because organizations are just straight up getting canceled you know it's when you have you know like a netflix or facebook out here donating millions for for different causes not because it's like oh we want to look like we're doing something i do hope that is for that they actually do see the value in doing that work um yeah but not acting on or having a, a, an adequate response, if you will, right now in these social injustice matters, will, has, and most likely will negatively impact businesses and organizations. So I'm sure that the leadership, both at the NFL, but at these you know private sector organizations are really sitting, working around the clock, like what can, <laughs> how can we both you know, do the right thing, right? Um, but also save our ass on the situation. Um, So I would think at a leadership level, and like, you know, in my opinion, I'm sure they've had these, I don't think that, you know, one month ago is the first time that these organizations have had these conversations, right? So I think that hopefully, right, hopefully. (laughs) um, So I would think that there have been things that have been done and things that are in motion, um, and the current climate is going to amplify and propel us into the future, if you will, um, on, yeah. on some of these matters. But it's like, you know, just hire more diverse folks, bring them up to the leadership level. You know, it's, I, I guess maybe I'm oversimplifying something. <laughs> um, but you know, when you're talking about equity and at least equity of like, even equity of opportunity, like do folks that look like me, do they really have the opportunity to come in as CEO or CFO or something in their lifetime without being, you know, having to be this unicorn of a person, whereas, you know, they are at the standard of excellence of their peer group. Um, So these are things I just, you know, wonder as I drink my wine on Monday evenings. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, a lot of it's systematic too, right? Like it it is a bottom up uh, problem, especially like you could see it in the NFL. Like if you have a very poor school district, that's not going to stop athletes right. from coming up in that area. Right. But if you have a very poor school district, they're not going to get the same education. Mm-hmm. They're not going to go to, you know, Stanford instead of, uh, you know, University of Missouri. Right. I don't know why I picked on right. them, but like, <laughs> you know, a, a lower level SEC school right. where they could possibly like, oh, okay, maybe they didn't quite make it to the NFL, but they're smart enough right. like they grew up in the right environment mm-hmm. where they can think the right way that they could play the game right. like you were saying earlier mm-hmm. and work their way up the corporate the nfl corporate ladder um which i mean is almost exclusively reserved for white people right now right. because you know we have access to good education so mm-hmm. it, it is like 
it's it is a ground up problem at the same time. But yeah, you could definitely walk in there and be like, "What the fuck, guys? Like, hire more <laughs> minorities. There's plenty of them. <laughs> like, you're <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's more of them here than absolutely. anywhere else. What like where else could you be? Yeah, and it's crazy because it's like right now in 2020, we live in arguably the most you know highest highly educated diverse population yeah. almost in recorded history you know but the minorities are almost the, mi- the, the majority, majority yep yeah. and and the fact that we're seeing you know the manifestations of the of an existing societal system still take place um you know folks like i know i'm not asking for a handout i'm just asking for the opportunity to have at least to have the same opportunity to win like at least yeah. you know if, if my name is you know there's studies that are like if if you have a person named katie and a person named keisha or a, you know a more unique name same qualifications the the hr is likely to lean more into who into the katie right than, than the keisha yeah so you know how can we address those things like that's the kind of equity that i would want to see um kind of in the organizational space as we move forward in this yeah no that that uh that makes a lot of sense mm-hmm. um Okay, so let's let's shift topics. Let's go back to international because you sure. just did one of the coolest things that I've ever heard <laughs> in my life. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you just this last week moderated a panel that had the Queen of the Democratic Republic Republic of the Congo on it, correct? Yes. yes. Okay. <laughs> Tell me what that's like. The, give me the whole picture. Fan fangirl yes, out. It, unless it wasn't so you that know me, exciting. Because then, I was uh, such a fan. When I tell you, you would th- I mean, you would think that I was speaking to a living Disney princess. Like I was just in awe. I mean, you almost this are. Woman, yes. <laughs> um, but the conversation, it was it was a uh, virtual event organized by The World is Watching and in connection with other partnering organizations. Um having a conversation it was on juneteenth last friday on how what could a united african diaspora look like like what could that look like in the current context how can we use technology to connect more and where black communities around the globe can connect and support each other so having the opportunity to speak to queen diambi was just like so it was it was like it was so inspiring one because she as a person is just so kind and warm and compassionate um, that, you know, she would be speaking. I would get lost in her words. Like, I'd be like, oh, shit, what's the next question I have to ask? Like, so, <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm so blessed and fortunate to even be in the position to be able to contribute to these things and to these different projects. Like, literally, the world is watching started as an idea of me just being like, you know, how can I explain what's happening to my international friends, what's going on for Black Lives yeah. Matter? And it's grown to this super large thing um, that I think has helped. And our, our hope is that we've been able to, you know, help in what ways we can. And like I tell folks, you know, help how you can, when you can, where you can, because this is an ongoing fight, right? Like in an ideal world, we could say, oh, on August 1st, 2020, all of this will be solved. But that's not the case. So it's like, you know, how are we using our voices and our access to try to make a more just and a more equitable world where people have a fighting chance in some of these spaces? So sorry to diverge in that. Queen Diambi was great. (laughs) And it was was a great panel (laughs) to to moderate. (laughs) Is there anything that she said specifically that really kind of resonated with you of just like, oh, shit, why did I not Mm. think of that? Or was it kind of more of just, uh, you know, like a a round round table, everyone giving Mm -hmm. thoughts and, and having a discussion? Yeah, so it was more round table formatted, but there was one thing in particular that really stood out to me. She said that before she came to the U.S. for a visit um, that, you know, her family and her friends told her, you know, be careful and be, you know, the U.S. is dangerous. It's dangerous. Black people in the U.S. are dangerous. You need to be careful there. Um, You know, and she said based on the things that she saw in the media or on TV or in movies, you know, she was afraid to, you know, go to black communities or interact with black people. She said, interact with my people. We're the same people. And then she had, she said, you know, basically she had to check her own bias and her own, you know, we kind of have this like cognitive dissonance to these things, but checking her own bias on, 
you know, what we are um, absorbing in the media or on TV to be true instead of, you know, going off of our experiences and on our actual, you know, human connections with people. So that really stuck out to me because yeah. it made me, you know, you would, no, that's heavy. Yeah, it's heavy. And, and as, um, you know, a group of black folks talking about this, about understanding, you know, threat, but we are, you know, talking about our own community and what does that look like and coming to terms like this is, and that just reaffirmed for me that this whole, this time and these issues and, and this is a learning time and a learning opportunity for everybody. Like not yeah. just for white folks, not just for black folks. Like we're all out here doing our best to, you know, learn and grow and and make this world a better place i know that sounds very cheesy and very corny um (laughs) but that was like my biggest takeaway from that from from hearing her speak wow yeah Mm -hmm. i mean that really says a lot about the u.s uh culture Mm. that we are just so divided Mm -hmm. and divisive at the same time Um, wow, I'm super jealous. I, uh, I wish I wish I got to be there, at least like see or, or hear it. That sounds fascinating. Um, sure. Well, okay, the recording so is on YouTube, so I'm happy to share that with you. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Send that uh, send that over to me sure. afterwards and I'll put it in the uh, I'll put it in the show description. Sure, so, sure. Um, cool. Well, so we're almost at an hour. Yeah. Is there anything that you wanted to say to kind of wrap it up? Like, can people yes. donate to your organization? Which, which places should okay. they donate? How do they help? How do they be better allies? Like you were saying right. before, and then what else should I put in my show description for yes. just like, you know, links to, to help people out? Yes. So I do encourage folks to, again, the world is watching is a coalition of people who are helping. So we are not financing, like we're not taking any money. We're not, that's not what we're here to do. Um, So I do encourage, um, um, you know, individuals to do their research on donating and and where they're donating and, you know, ensuring where those funds are going to. I know in particular, um, folks have been putting some emphasis on, you know, donating and supporting kind of like local black businesses, if you can, or like Mm. funds supporting those businesses because, you know, not only because of this situation going on, but the, you know, COVID-19 coronavirus situation has been really uh, cha- creating more challenging situations for folks. Um, for everybody, yeah. Yeah, for everybody. So I'd say as my like concluding thoughts on how allies can show up in this fight, um, I'd like to start off by saying thank you. Like I'm thankful to each and every voice that has used their space Um, to support these efforts, like ensuring equality, ensuring protection, justice, um, for, and opportunities for black and brown people in this country. And that relates to all people in this country, Um, you know, to persons who are advocating against uh, violence and racism and systematic injustice in the US. Um, You know, before I provide any suggestions on like how allies can continue to show up, I encourage and urge all people to be mindful of their mental health and well-being during this time. You know, engage when you can, how you can. Um, Firstly, no act is too big or too little. So share the post, Mm. respond to the comment, have conversations with friends and family. You know, it's okay to ask like, what do you think about what's going on? Or like, what are you guys talking about where you are in this? Um, yeah. You know, I, I urge all of my friends who are allies to look past the, you know, well, a post is performative, I'm performing, you know, or a post may not be not enough. I challenge that notion because, you know, in my eyes, it's likely that you as an ally or, you know, an international friend may have access to individuals who are learning about this and engaging with this that could be for their first time or you know them hearing it or seeing it from you may spark a different thought than if it was coming from me um or from someone that looks like me and the conversation might be a little different coming from you as someone that they relate to right so i encourage engagement and active involvement you know attending a peaceful protest um for my international allies we have folks who are translating resources and terminology into their native language. You know, continue doing research and learning, um, supporting and donating how you can. Next, leaning in to challenging others. You know, cancel culture is really easy, right? But um, in ways it, cancel culture can continue this cycle of, 
not only discouraging individuals to learn, but ultimately push people deeper into spaces of hate, in my opinion. Right. Um, so it doesn't help anything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I know it's like easy to do and it feels good in the moment. Like, yeah, I told them block, you know, but yeah. <laughs> um, be as open as you can, right? You know, to have dialogues or using your voice to support a more peaceful, a more compassionate, a just, you know, understanding world. Um, being open to learning, we may not know all the exact answers, like me as Alexandria, you as Corey, us in this world. Um, and that's okay, show up anyway. As my program director, Tom O'Toole from Cornell says, he says, I'm here to lean into the learning, Alexandria. I look forward to the opportunity to learn and explore these thoughts. I said, okay, Tom, if you want it, I'm, I'm gonna give it to you real, so be, be ready, <laughs> be ready. It's the only way to give it. <laughs> um, learning our roles, so the social change ecosystem, it involves so many roles, disruptors, frontline responders, guides, visionaries, healers, nurturers, builders, connectors, writers. I'd encourage anyone to explore, and I can send you the link on this, explore your role. Um, Medium.com did a great article that's called Mapping Our, Mapping Our Social Change Roles in Times huh. of Crisis, which has shaped the way that I see my role in this um, and for those who I've shared it with. And, Interesting. Yeah, and then lastly, just show up anyway. Somebody will always have something to say, whether you helped, whether you didn't help. And at the very least, I feel like when we're, you know, old sitting in our rocking chairs, like looking back <laughs> on, um, you know, on 2020 on our holographic televisions, um, <laughs> reflecting on this time, like we want to be able to say, I genuinely tried. I used my power that I had access to, to amplify a very important cause, if not one of the most important causes, you know, most important for our generation to contribute to a solution. This is, we're living in the largest civil rights movement in recorded history right now. Um, yeah. And again, there's big ways to do that and there's little ways to do that. So help how you can, when you can, and where you can. That's great. No, that's uh, that's a perfect way to wrap up, I think. Um, yes. So thank you, Alex, for doing this. I really appreciate it. I definitely I think this stuff is super interesting, and I know I, I learned a ton. So uh, maybe down the line we'll have to do another one and kind of get a, a State of the Union sure. type, uh, <laughs> type podcast going. Absolutely. Um, and thank, awesome. you, Corey, for, yeah. thank you, Corey, for holding this space and having this conversation seriously yeah of course no i'm i'm always happy when people are doing interesting things yes. that actually matter i'm always happy to talk <laughs> to them so awesome well cool i will talk to you soon all righty thanks Corey. <laughs> bye-bye all right bye-bye